You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Please remain standing for our two scripture readings. First is from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Our second passage is Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men, men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray.
So, Father, we begin by saying thank you. Thank you. We praise you. We honor you. We glorify you. You alone are our wisdom. We would have never thought of this. You alone are righteousness. We could not have accomplished this. You alone are our Lord and our Savior. So we come and we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. There are a number of subtle dangers as we take a few minutes to reflect upon the story that we just heard told. Uh, One of those dangers is that we can begin to emote or to feel or or to sentimentalize the idea that, that Jesus in this whole thing was somehow an innocent victim. That what happened in the story that was just told to us was um, he was betrayed by a close friend to religious and political operatives, handed over to a tyrannical state, and killed. And that what we just heard and, and the way that we should feel and react and what we should believe about this story, what we should believe primarily about this night is something tragic happened, and that's what we're to think of it. Here's Jesus, Lord, the teacher, in some sense, the savior of the world. We hear this story and the temptation might be merely to think of him as someone to whom terrible things were done. So you might be sitting there feeling sad. Sad because terrible things were done to Jesus. And here's the thing. Terrible things were done to Jesus. But if you think of him in the classification of victim, as someone to whom all of these things merely happened, you will miss the entirety of the beauty and the meaning of this night. Early in the book of Acts, as the apostles begin to preach and pronounce and proclaim the message we're going to sing about on Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, as they begin to teach about what preceded that resurrection, namely that he was handed over and he was crucified. He he dies a traitor's death outside of Jerusalem in exile from from his people. Um, He he dies a shameful death. As they begin to tell that story, there's an interesting line that gets thrown in um, during the sermons that are preached in Jerusalem. It says, you intended this for evil. You did this with ill will. You did this having no idea what you were doing. But God did it and intended it according to his promises. You should be shocked by that. Disciples hear that story. They watch that story unfold. 
and their assessment is a whole bunch of people did evil things. But if you know what was truly going on on that Friday, um, on that Friday in which Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and crucified, the deepest meaning of those events is God did that. And God didn't just do that in the last second. This is something that God promised. He told us about. He did it. It's also notable that throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus doesn't present himself as an innocent victim going to Jerusalem to be betrayed and killed. He, 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 he tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will lay my life down. I will take it up again. Was he betrayed? Yes. Was the trial complete fraudulent mockery of justice? Yes. As you hear these events, they're not random historical events that were tragic. They were ordained by God. They were enacted by God. Um, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and to die this death for a reason. That's what I want us to talk about for the next few minutes. Because if it was just random, there's no reason. It's just sad. But everything in the Old and New Testament that resonate with, with the story of this night tells us that it was intentional. It was purposeful. It was done by the most powerful and purposeful being in all of the universe. God never does anything accidentally. He never does things reactionarily. He acts with purpose, a good purpose. So having looked at the event itself, I want to look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is used in several places in the New Testament, including early sermons in the book of Acts, to explain for us the meaning of Jesus' death. So we're going to go to Isaiah 53 and allow the prophet, several centuries before these things took place, explain to us the meaning of these things. What was God doing? What was Jesus doing? When he went to Jerusalem, he went to the cross. So, verses 1 through 3. The prophet begins this section by saying, Who has believed what he's heard from us? I'm afraid for many of us in this room, that those of us who were raised around Christianity, who've heard this story over and over and over again, who maybe, like if you were like me, grew up in a church where you sang nothing but the blood, like ad nauseum, um, like it was kind of the, um, I grew up in a church where they would do uh, invitations at the end of the service and they would just sit on that song um, until somebody came up uh, to pray a prayer and sign a card. Um, uh, the, the, the temptation is that this story can become normative. It can become normal. It can, it, it, it can just become, oh yeah, that's the Christian story. That, that's the story that gets us ready for Easter. 
Um, that, that's the story we hear all the time. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But, but there is something you, you would be missing if that's your reaction. The prophet says, who has believed what he's heard from us? There's something scandalous about this story. Something ridiculous about this story. Something that those in tribal religions, those in Islam, mock about this story. And if you've lost the pinch of that, the shocking nature of this, then perhaps you've grown too comfortable with it. If you're going to make up a religion with intentions to take over the world, you don't tell a story about a God who comes to die. That is precisely the story we tell. If, if you want to tell a story about a religion, if you want to make one up, it really draws the crowds. Gets everybody on board with the deal. You don't make as your example. You don't make as um, the one who demonstrates us for, for us the, the full nature of the character of God and the, the full reality of what it means to be human. You don't give us a story about a man who's betrayed by one of his 12 closest friends, is beaten, and then is crucified Naked. That, that's just not the story you tell. I don't know how many of you are in the religion making up business. You should get out of it. It's one of my goals tonight if you're in it. But that's not the way to do it. Like there, if I were to draw up like a marketing scheme for you to come to me and say, hey, marketer, chief marketer, Brian, what store? I really want to come up with a new religion that will really sell. I mean, really to really go there with people. And you brought this story to me, my reaction to you would be, you're an idiot. This is a terrible idea. Really don't think anybody's going to buy this deal. If you're trying to make money, not going to happen. If you're trying to get a lot of people to believe that this is what happened, not many people are going to believe it. But this is the story we tell. This is the story we sing about. It's a story we remember and unite, are united with week after week as we take bread and wine. That God became man and then God was killed in the most brutal way imaginable. And we actually believe it happened. It's not a folk tale. It's not someone having a dream and reporting to us some message that they received in their dream. The heart of Christianity is an unbelievable story about something someone else did. 
This really, as we we're talking about this again on Sunday, it's one of the most remarkable things. It is, in fact, the most unique thing about the nature of Christianity. It, it is based on, and it, is, it, it lives or dies on the basis of a, a confession about something that took place in history. No other religion does that. Every other religion has historical stories in there, um, but at the end of the day, they give you ethical norms, they give you rituals, um, they give you all kinds of other things. But at the heart of Christianity, what Christianity gives you is a story, a a call to confess and believe that 2,000 years ago, something actually occurred in Jerusalem. And that that thing that occurred is the center of all of history. That everything hinges on what took place in that city and just outside of that city 2,000 years ago. It is the grounds of Christianity. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're you're, um, confused about the nature of Christianity, here's what I have to tell you. Um, We don't come and first offer you a way of life. We don't offer you first a set of rituals. We don't offer you a whole lot of um, baggage at the beginning. It begins and ends with a confession about the accomplishment, the work, the real accomplishment of a real historical person who did real historical things. And if he didn't actually die on a cross, if he didn't actually come out of the grave three days later, then Christianity is worthless it's a waste of your time so not only do we what we confess to be true not only is it ridiculous and scandalous it is also absolutely historically true and if it's not you guys are having a really, 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 really weird Friday night. So verses one through three, who has believed what they have heard from us? Verses four through nine, we heard the story of the crushing of Jesus. What is the grounds of that crushing? Okay, God did this. Why did he do it? Look at verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. If you look later, says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That The language of these verses, verses four through nine, is the language on two different images from the Old Testament are used to describe and define for us the meaning of Jesus' death. Um, Why was Jesus beaten and killed and hung on a cross? The two images um, are images first of exile. Throughout the Old Testament, the great curse of God placed, um, it's a repetition, repetitious pattern that occurs throughout the whole of the Old Testament. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, when they sin against God, 
um, they are cast out of the garden, cast out of the place where they had communion with God. They're sent into exile. Israel, as they rebel against God, as they begin to worship idols, as their sins begin to pile up and they forget the worship of God, they forget the law of God, they forget the sacrifices. They are driven away in exile. They're driven from the land. They're driven from dwelling in the place where God is. Um, And they're handed over to the consequences of sin. That language is used in this, chap- in this section to describe what happened to Jesus. There's a meaning why Jesus was taken outside of the city to be hung on the cross and killed. They didn't behead him in the city. They didn't crucify him in the city. They didn't just kill him in the city in whatever convenient manner. They took him out of the city to die, and he dies specifically within Rome, the death of crucifixion. The death of crucifixion... It's a particular kind of death reserved for treason. A betrayal of the highest authority. So Jesus goes and he dies the death of a traitor in exile, driven from the presence of God, the city of God. He dies as one who had betrayed his Lord he dies as one who, who had been disloyal to his God. The other language, this language of a lamb that is led to slaughter, it's used again, another language in verse 10, an offering for guilt. The language used to describe the death of Jesus is language associated with worship at the temple. One of the five offerings offered at the temple was the guilt offering. If you're a member of the covenant community, a Jew, you come and be welcomed into the presence of God. It was necessary for you to bring a guilt offering. In other words, because of all of your sins, because of your rebellion against God, because of your numerous acts of disloyalty to God and your failure to keep his law, for you to be welcomed into the presence of God, for you to remain in covenant with God, it was absolutely essential that you bring a guilt offering. You see, because of your sin, something must die. Something must bear wrath. This is the language associated with the death of Jesus is one, the language of exile, but two, the language of the guilt offering. Well, he doesn't bring a guilt offering. He is the guilt offering. He's the guilt offering for sin. He is the one who goes into exile. But notice, he goes into exile not for his sin. He's crushed not for his sin. He's crushed for our iniquities. He's pierced for our transgressions. How did Jesus conquer the world? Let 
on the grounds of what are all the nations declared to be his. Revelation 5 says it's because of this. Because he died in our place and with his blood he has purchased men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus goes to the cross and he dies in our place. How was the victory that was promised, that was declared on Palm Sunday, how was it won? How was it accomplished? He dies in the place of his enemies. bears the punishment for their guilt. He goes into exile in their place. His blood is spilled so that may they might, might stand. The last, to reinforce a point we opened with. Verses 10 and the fruit of it, verse 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It is a breathtaking thing to consider the suffering and the death of Jesus. But it is more than we can even fathom that this was God's will. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord that he would bear your iniquities. It was the will of the Lord that he would be pierced for your transgressions. It was the will of the Lord that he would be driven into exile for your idolatry. So what is the fruit? What it did accomplish? says that his soul makes an offering for guilt and he shall see his offspring and it will prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The fruit of it is that you and I through the work of Jesus not on account of any of your good works not on account of, of you kind of pulling yourself together and cleaning up your life and proving yourself to be righteous enough. But not because any of you in this room um, have done nobly enough or good enough. Not because any of you in this room have prayed enough. Um, but solely on account of Jesus, you and I are now not just, not just brought to a neutral place. We are called, according to this text, the children of God. Can you believe it? 
It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? So that you and I might be washed, we might be cleansed, that all our transgressions, that all our iniquities might be cast away from us so that you and I might not just be brought to the status of slave, but rather we'd be brought to the status of son and daughter of the Most High God. And that through the work of Jesus, all the nations would be gathered to him. That men and women and children from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, none would be left out. But rather, as Jesus is exalted as the crucified Lord and his offering is proclaimed and celebrated and it changes lives, he calls men and women to himself and he forms a family of washed and cleansed and forgiven brothers and sisters everywhere. The imagery in this text, it pulls together two things. One, the, the accomplishment of his blood, that his blood actually purchases offspring for God, actually purchases a family for God. He, it, it cleanses those who had been left out, those who were traitors, and brings them near. In the second, it says this wonderful phrase, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's this wonderful image in Revelation chapter 5 um, where God is seated on the throne and the worship of all creation is surrounding him um, and he's holding a scroll and that scroll represents his will. It represents his purposes for all the nations of the earth Um, and a question goes out who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals Um, and to open the seals on a scroll means to enact whatever is written on that scroll. It is to put it into into action. So a question goes out and John looks around and says, and no one in heaven or on earth was found who was worthy to open the scroll. It's a a tragic moment in heaven. No one can do what God wants done. And then the lamb appears and he looks like a lion, a bloody lion lamb, lion. And it says that he is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. He is worthy to accomplish all of God's will for all the nations of the earth and your life. Why? Because with his blood, he has purchased you and me. So the will the Lord will prosper in his hand. The nations will be his. From the nations will be a people too numerous to count. They will love him and they will worship him and they will obey him. And all the earth will be made new. This is what he accomplished. And now to close. I said earlier there were dangers tonight. Familiarity was a danger. Sentimentality is a danger. Some of you are used to coming to Good Friday services and come to Good Friday services and we sing sad songs. I mean, 
You don't like sing stricken, smitten, and afflicted in order to feel real happy. <laughs> it's just not a happy title. Um, so there's sentimentality is danger, right? You come here, we reflect on the cross, and what you do when you reflect on the cross is you just feel really sad. A bad thing happened. Then we go home, and then Easter, then the reverse is, and a really happy thing happened, and so now we're really happy. Um, there's another danger in this room, and uh, those of you who are particularly drawn to like Reformed theology, this would be your danger, my danger. It's merely to come and kind of think intellectually about the theological meaning of these events and to think about the atonement. Christ dies in our place. Think about justification by faith. We're made right with God by believing in Jesus. You kind of get, make sure your boxes are checked and that Brian didn't go out of bounds and, and, uh, and we got all the right doctrines that are associated with the cross and I really nailed them down tonight. And, and so you come here and some of you are, are more sentimental and so you just come and you feel sad and some of you are more intellectual and you just come here and you think through the logic, the rationale, the reasoning, the theology behind the cross. There's a moment, I don't know if you caught it when Justin was reading in Luke 23. He's carrying the cross out of Jerusalem. There's this interesting moment. It tells us that Luke tells us that the women are weeping, groaning, they're, they're, they're sad. They're feeling a lot of sad things about a sad thing that's happening. As they're weeping, it's this astonishing thing happens that Jesus does, that Luke records for us. He, he stops. I mean, just imagine this for a moment. He's just been beaten, going to his death, passes a group of women who are weeping because it is sad. And he looks at them and he says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. danger tonight is to think this is merely another sad event. The other danger tonight is to get all your theology right. By the way, it's really important to get your theology right. I think that's the goal of the cross. But to miss the weeping, the weeping for yourself and for your sin. The point of the proclamation of the cross is not merely that you would think or feel that tragic things happen to Jesus, although tragic things happened to Jesus. It's not merely that you get some sort of doctrinal things in order, although it is wonderful to understand those doctrinal truths. The point of the proclamation of the cross, in fact, it's recorded for us in the book of Acts. On the very first time, the cross is preached in Acts 2. Do you know what happens when Peter declares to them the crucifixion of Jesus? Luke, again, same author, um, tells us that the people, thousands of them, were cut to the heart and say, what must we do to be saved? 
That the right response to the proclamation of the cross, oh, you should try to understand it logically and theologically, and, 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 and you should see and, and, and feel the weight of the tragedy of it, but above all else, it should cut you to the heart to say, what must I do to be saved? It should lead to weeping for yourself. Weeping in the face of your own sin. And then a weeping for joy. That here, here at last is one who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray and prepare for communion.